ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Opposition front bench said to me today, it's like being at a smorgasbord at the moment. You can sort of just take your pick on which target you go at and they just haven't had that for the last 15 months, the opposition, so I think they're enjoying it. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Welcome to the Party Room. I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation in Sydney. And I'm Greg Jennett, host of Afternoon Briefing, joining you from Ngunnawal country here in the nation's capital. I'm filling in for PK this week as she shrugs off a bit of lurgy. So uh, PK, wishing you a speedy recovery. And Fran, uh, with some relief, we can say Parliament has wrapped up for the year. Finally, I say as I exhale, uh, quite a bit to get through, actually. There sure is a lot to sink our teeth into. And Greg, sinking is the operative word, I think. Support for the government has dropped like a stone over the last few months since the referendum defeat and then the High Court decision four weeks ago, which ruled indefinite immigration detention illegal. That resulted in 148 detained foreign nationals being immediately released into the community. We've talked about that before over the last couple of weeks. But the fallout from that decision has really consumed Parliament and the media cycle ever since. The opposition's having a field day. The government's giving them plenty to work with. But things, I think it's fair to say, Greg, took a dangerous turn this week. And I don't really mean politically. This is much more than just a political point-scoring debacle for the government. The stakes are high. Community safety is at the centre of it. So this week, when four former detainees released under the ruling re-offended, two of them accused of committing sexual offences, the government had to act fast. We're recording this on Thursday morning and late last night the parliament was recalled to pass a new preventive detention regime which could see the government asking the courts to re-detain some of these people, judging them to be an ongoing risk to the community. So that, that law is through. Is this the end of the political pain for the government? Unlikely, I think. We're going to be joined soon by Charles Crouch, a chief political editor of Nine News, to talk more about it. Meanwhile, Greg, the government keeps trying to regain some political momentum, particularly before Parliament rises this week. And beyond this issue, they have had some success, starting with National Cabinet, where state and territory leaders sit around the table with the Prime Minister. Health reform, disability reform, National Firearms Registry... This has been a very significant meeting. So, Greg, just how significant and substantial were the outcomes of that meeting and and how much did the PM have to shell out Federal state harmony doesn't come cheap, it seems to me. It doesn't, Fran, and the bill isn't fully known yet. It may not be knowable for quite some time. But make no mistake, these are pretty substantial agreements that have been struck on, let's face it, what are traditionally the biggest sticking points in federal state relations. But 
uh, it's going to take tens of billions of dollars on our early reckoning of the full uh, tally for Jim Chalmers on his federal budget. But what we're seeing here, Fran, basically is a trade-off made between the disability insurance scheme on one side, where the states have been told to pick up more assistance than's currently offered by them for some people, and then on the other side, to sweeten that deal, more money for strained state and territory health and hospital systems, and then, of course, an extension for another three years of a GST no-worse-off guarantee, which uh, was all a consequence, of course, of that uh, somewhat irregular deal done to placate Western Australia by the Morrison government. Uh, Look, on the sideline, there was also an integration of the full National Firearms Registry database so that it can be accessed instantly and live. But put together, uh, a lot, a lot to achieve in about three hours of meeting in the Cabinet Room this week. Yeah, and we know, as you say, we don't know the whole um, funding deal yet, but we know at least $25 billion in total. So that's a, a fair start. But as you say, Greg, the NDIS agreement, uh, reform of the NDIS was central to the whole meeting. The Prime Minister needed to sweeten the deal to make sure the states came on board and agreed to increase their funding and their efforts when it came to the NDIS. The recommendations of the review of the NDIS have just been released and at the heart of the change and the heart of the state's agreed cooperation is moving children with mild autism and other developmental issues out of the NDIS system. Currently, kids, I think, this is an extraordinary statistic, make up almost half of NDIS participants. So they want to get those kids that don't necessarily need such intense disability support to be supported instead in schools, in childcare, m- many of which are state-run and paid for, there'll be more carers, aids and equipment for kids, psychosocial support for kids in this situation. It's called foundational support, and it's all about trying to return the NDIS to its original intention, which was to support people with permanent and significant disability. This is a really big change if it works, isn't it? Absolutely, because of the sheer magnitude of growth that has been recognised pretty widely as unsustainable so far, Fran. Uh, So 14%, if uncontained, is the year-on-year growth. If that was allowed to follow through to its natural conclusion, within about 10 years, NDIS would easily be the single biggest line item of expenditure on the federal budget. So quite some time ago, pretty much a year ago, now, Fran, it was recognised by states, by the feds, that some limits needed to be put. And then a methodical process was put in place to say, OK, 8% growth in funding, we'll all agree to that. But now we're getting down through the Bill Shorten uh, released review done, it's also known as the Bonner Haiti Paul review. Uh, with that release, we now have a bit more granular detail about how the states will be expected to do more. And we are, as you say, Fran, talking primarily about young adolescents and younger-aged children in that uh, cohort of the NDIS currently. Yeah, there's also reforms about you know stamping down on on rotting of the system, which is a, a good place to start too. Importantly, members of the disability community were a part of this, and you know they too are committed to the sustainability of the scheme. No one wants to see it fall apart. But the opposition, though, is trying to keep the pressure on the government over this. Uh, to maintain NDIS participant numbers following this review. Here's Susan Lee. 
Anthony Albanese said yesterday that no one will be removed from the NDIS under his government. I want to see today if Bill Shorten backs that up today in the light of those National Cabinet announcements. Greg, have they? Has the government committed to not throwing anyone off the NDIS who's there already? Not in those explicit terms exactly, Fran. This is, as far as I can tell, an outstanding piece of intricate design work that will have to be negotiated. Such a lovely way to put it, Greg, that it's (laughs) half-baked. Well, that is to say, whether it is grandfathering or protecting each and every person who is currently on the NDIS, or whether it simply captures new diagnoses, let's say, of a child with mild autism. This is not clear. Even state premiers that we spoke to in town here in Canberra after National Cabinet yesterday, Fran, admitted they were unclear on it as well. So it sounds like a fair bit of wrangling will have to go on on that specific point. But look, the politics more broadly, I think, aren't quite as volatile as someone like Susan Lee's comments might lead us to believe here, Fran. What about uh, the disability community? Have you got any sense of how they're feeling or responding to this? Well, I think this is a bit of a tribute to Bill Shorten and the government's handling of this. There has been a, a well-thought-out process that wasn't rushed. It's pretty much run through a 12-month period now. And a key part of the work that Bruce Bonahady and Lisa Paul went through was regular consultation, deep consultation with that community. So, look, it's early days and you can't quite tell from the initial responses that were splashed on Thursday morning, our time after the release of that review, but it seemed fairly supportive, I thought. Yeah, and I think there's a five-year time frame to roll all these out, which is critical because one of the other major recommendations from the review is uh, an increased and improved workforce, carer workforce, and, you know, there's so much demand for the care workforce to be expanded in aged care, in hospitals, in childcare. Uh, here we have now the, the disability workforce, you know, and this is not quick. This is, you've got no. to find the workforce, you've got to train the workforce, so that can't happen quickly. So there's big challenges. Anyway, this seems like a perfect time to bring in our guest. What do you reckon, Greg? Oh, I reckon we go right ahead and do that, Fran. Charles Croucher, Chief Political Editor at Nine News. A hearty welcome to the party room. Thank you. Nice to be here. Hey, Charles. Yeah, good to have you back. Charles, it's a real sprint to the finish line this week as Parliament gets ready to wrap for the year. And it was clear the government was very eager to sweep up the ongoing mess from the High Court ruling on indefinite immigration detention. The legislation passed late last night in the reps. Is this the end of it? Has the government righted the ship? I don't think it's the end of it. I mean, politically, certainly not. And then even legally, there's these challenges in the High Court. You know, the Attorney General and the Home Affairs Minister have done their best to say this is as watertight as they think they can get the laws, given that the High Court, in their reasoning for that original case, have effectively laid a path for the government to walk down with legislation. They have this new standards, the the double test of uh, someone who was a former detainee, first of all, having to have committed uh, these violent or serious or sexual crimes with a uh, punishment of over seven years in prison in Australian court. And then the second test, which is where the court will come in going forward, and that is that there has to be this high probability uh, that they would re-offend. Now, the risk throughout the summer and indeed the risk throughout the rest of next year and as long as this goes on for the government will be that one of these 140 people that isn't locked up may re-offend. Now, that's pretty natural and pretty 
normal when it comes to reoffending rates of previously incarcerated people almost across the world. But uh, the opposition has made it clear, really clear, this is a ground that they'd like to have a political fight on all the way to the election and during the election campaign if they could, and they will use any excuse to get this back on the agenda. And I think any um, reoffending would be that excuse. Uh, and you've seen that in the last few days. Yeah, and then throughout this process, we've had a bit of a difficult balance act. Of course, the government braces itself each and every day for further news of former detainees who've been arrested. And then there's the question of uh, just how responsive mm. should the relevant ministers be, Claire O'Neill and Andrew Giles. So uh, finally, they decided, yep, let's flick the switch to a full Blue Room media conference accompanied by Mark Dreyfus, the attorney and they're going to explain their way out of this corner that they've found themselves in. Uh, except it didn't all go entirely to plan when Sky News journalist Olivia Casely uh, asked a question about whether or not ministers should apologise to members of the community who uh, you know, might have suffered through the misdeeds of some of these former detainees. Uh, here's what the Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus, had to say. I will not be apologising for upholding the law. I will not be apologising for pursuing the rule of law. And I will not be apologising for acting... Do not interrupt. I will not be apologising for acting... I will not be apologising for acting in accordance with a High Court decision. Your question is an absurd one. Yeah, so voices raised. He just might have had a sound legal point yeah. to make there, but he let the frustrations boil over. How much of a misstep was that? I mean, the first thing, even, you know, I was in the room, three very different characters mm. up there, the, the three ministers that were involved in three very different approaches. The other surprising part of Mark Dreyfus's point there, second last question of the press conference, Claire O'Neill had already answered the question. He came over the top with that and it was a real frustration. Now, you're right, legally sound, you know, will this still be an issue in mm. four days' time, five days' time? I don't think so. If you asked Liv about it now, she'd say the same thing. It does show, though, that there's not a clear, concise, same path message that he is then getting over the top of the, the Home Affairs Minister who had pretty dead batted that question away. Again, legally probably right. I'm not sure if that's going to stand up, though. And now all the news services have a grab mm. if if this comes up again in the future. Mm. Um, and, and as horrible as that alleged case was in Adelaide, there are worse crimes that could be committed in the future as well. And if mm. that comes up, this question will be asked again. Yeah, and when, we, when you say, both of you, that, you know, you had a sound... A legal point, what the point is that the court ruled that these people need to be released. Now, this is a point of law that the opposition is still challenging. You know, the deputy leader of the opposition was still challenging it very mm. clearly this morning on RM Breakfast. They are. I'm interested in the two of you, your opinion, because this has a feel of the citizenship scandal about it, mm. in that there was a real lack of control mm. that the government had at that time, and that this was imposed upon them by the courts that any time you're waiting for that next notification, mm -hmm. now in that six circumstance, it was a senator standing up and saying, oh, by the way, my dad was entitled to New Zealand citizenship and therefore I'm out. Felt a little bit out of control. And that's sort of part of this feel now. And That's the heart of our system, isn't it? It's, you know, the separation of powers that the yeah. government doesn't control the courts. 
That's why we're a democracy. Yeah, that's true. I think citizenship was somewhat less controllable because it could have come out of any one of 227 yeah. elected representatives. Yeah, multiple points of confusion being thrown at the then government of the day. Uh, this one really boils down to effectively, you know, two judgments, one, one in particular, NZYQ, mm-hmm. about that separation of powers. I, I think the weight of opinion is that the government could have been and should have been more nimble and more responsive oh, for on sure. this occasion. For sure. Yeah. And Charles, I mean, clearly the community is not too impressed if the polls are right. This week's Resolve poll showed Labor losing its lead from earlier in the year on national security and the economy. Mm. You know, why is this important? Because it's such a rare and hard-won superiority for Labor. Yeah. Normally the coalition, that's their safe ground. It looks like Labor's lead on these two indicators has vanished for now due to the cost of living crisis, of course, and this High Court decision. Opposition leader Peter Dutton is really pushing his newfound advantage. This is a government that's rattled and the wheels are coming off and this is a weak and woke Prime Minister who won't stand up for Mm. Australia's best interests and I think that's why people are marking him down at the moment. Peter Dutton's sounding pretty confident, isn't he? He was. Weak and woke was one of the criticisms of the Australian one-day cricket team before they went over and won the World Cup in India. So I wonder if that's going to come back and bite (laughs) at some stage as well. Peter Dutton is fighting a battle on turf that he would like. Now, he would be the first to admit, and he has to both the party room and privately to plenty of journalists, he thinks this is a, a slump that the government will probably work its way out of early next year. He would also be aware that it's difficult to keep fighting this fight on these fertile grounds of particularly immigration, but also the economy for another 15 or 16 months into the next election. So you wonder if that fight turns at some stage in the new year to education or to health, whether the government gets back on sort of more solid turf as well. And unlike in the Rudd-Gillard years, and there are many in the in the government front bench and in that cabinet who would have lived through those days, oh, some yeah. may have been immigration minister and they will all be very aware of the risk that runs. When the boats kept coming, this kept becoming a problem. And it just gave Tony Abbott and his supporters, be they in the party room, in the parliament, in the media, a chance to keep this issue bubbling along for the entirety of the electoral cycle. I I don't see that happening here. And Peter Dutton will say that. But it's, you know, it's a, a moment where the government has looked vulnerable and an opposition front bencher said to me today, it's like being at a smorgasbord at the moment. You can sort of just take your pick on which target you go at. And they just haven't had that for the last 15 months, the opposition. So I think they're enjoying it. Yeah, let's see what Fortunes next year delivers, Charles. We've probably buried the lead here a little, though. Returning to the preventative detention laws that, Mm. of course, stem from the original High Court decision, Uh, these would, as you already summarised, allow state Supreme Court judges to decide if any of these released detainees are still a threat to the community and therefore should be banged up once again in uh, jail or other forms of detention. They're past the Parliament, but we aren't exactly clear, are we, on how many of the former detainees, 148 in total, this might apply to? No, the smart people seem to think very few because the hurdles are so high. But then I guess it's it's a case of a, a court by court basis, right? And, and around different parts of the country, and the government will test and will test and will test. And I assume um, there is a list starting with the most egregious and finishing with the least, and you'll see how far down that list the government can get. If if Claire O'Neill is 
is being honest, saying she would like to see all these people locked back up, as she has said time and time again, then that would be the process you think you'd be working through. But it, 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 you just don't know if that's if they're that organised at the moment. Uh, no, you don't get that impression. What you do get the impression of, though, is a, a hearty desire to have this dispensed with, which is yeah. why it was accelerated through the Senate on the Tuesday, through the House on the Wednesday. But there is this ever-present risk, isn't there, that if we keep getting daily press releases from federal police about re-arrests, this is just drip torture for the government. Yeah, and something might have to change. There was an interesting sort of theory going around with some of the government uh, MPs today, and that was, whilst they're happy this is done, there is a caution to just not get the teals offside too quickly with some of these parliamentary tactics. Mm. The teals were furious with the way this all went down. The idea there is a long game. Firstly, they are an asset to the government because they are making the Liberal Party in particular fight electoral battles, spend money, advertise, spend time in seats they should always, that seem natural liberal seats. And secondly, and more long term, if it's a minority government, the the Labor Party might need them. Yeah, that's true. Uh, And just on the teals, I thought it was interesting, the intervention from Deputy Opposition Leader Susan Lee this week, suggesting that the, the coalition will be fiercely contesting and plans to win back all those teal seats because, you know, I've been reading a lot of commentary and looking on, you think, well, that doesn't seem to be Peter Dutton's strategy. He seems to be focused more on trying to sort of destabilise Labor in outer suburban mm. seats and in, and in regions. But she reckons they're going to win those seats back, so it's something to watch. <laughs> well, money, money only goes so far, doesn't it? So sooner or later, uh, someone's going to have to prioritise which, right. which is, are winnable yeah. and which aren't. Talk now, is cheap, ads aren't. Exactly. The money. Now, Charles, I always love to talk IR here on the party room. We've been talking, Greg and I, about the win the PM got in National Cabinet with the states around the NDIS, but things are pretty far and furious there in Pali this week. This morning, the IR Minister, Tony Burke, says he's secured a win. For a long time, there's been discussions between myself, Senator Lambie and Senator Pocock, trying to find a way through on the fact that the legislation that I introduced earlier this year contained a very large number of provisions, but also wanting to make sure we could get as much done this year as possible. The Senate will pass his same job, same pay legislation, which looks like going nowhere, you'd have to say. Mm. How did he get key crossbenchers, Jackie Lambie and David Pocock, on board? They were sounding so hardline a week ago. Well, he did what they asked. He, he split the bill. Um, and that's what Jackie Lambie had said from almost day one, that mm. she wants to see these really important um, uh, sort of health safety regulations and, and the, the, the wage theft and superannuation theft element of it as well. But the, the health and safety, particularly for services and for the AFP, who have a, a really horrible record when it comes to former officers taking their own lives um, or, or self-harming, and ambulance officers too, getting them some really hard-fought wins. So there is that element. And then the contentious ideas around some of the other um, parts of gig reform, road transport, casual rates. Of casual pay, rates. Yeah. Uh, there seems to be momentum for that to pass as well. Now, that will become, uh, I think it's called closing loopholes too, mm. um, as compared to the closing loopholes law. But <laughs> Don't get confused. <laughs> yeah. What it's showing, though, is that there is a, a path, and Tony Burke's probably exploited this the best, right? There is a path, there is a majority in the Senate, if you can get the Greens on board, Jackie Lambie, David Pocock, Lydia Thorpe, like you've got more than enough votes there. And, and there is a way of getting things done 
And what, on contrast, and this goes to the business groups that said no, that ran the $24 million ad campaign against it, if you're not negotiating with the government, then it reminds me of the old idea that, you know, if you're not at the table, you fast become on the menu. And that's what we've seen here, that yeah. those groups, the Hotels Association, a few others that negotiated with the government got some carve-outs. Uh, it's pragmatic. Absolutely. This is a piece of classic Burkean pragmatism. And he hasn't had to give an awful lot away either. So he goes into the Christmas break uh, with yeah, sort of versions one and almost version 2.0. But more importantly, he comes back in the new year knowing most of those crossbenchers that uh, Charles just mentioned, the Greens, uh, Lydia Thorpe, David Pocock and Jackie Lambie, Tammy Tyrrell too, mm-hmm. are, uh, are there, there for the taking on pretty much the remainder of his omnibus bill agenda. A brave prediction, a brave prediction. Hey, Charles, just before we let you go, the death of Labor MP Peter Murphy this week at the age of 50 following a public and tough battle with breast cancer. Tributes flowed across the parliamentary divide, which is you know always good to see. Any reflections on Peter Murphy to share? Uh, Peter Murphy was one of those people that was genuinely liked on both sides of Parliament, and they are few and far between and sadly getting fewer mm-hmm. with our polarised society. Peter had this amazing, and I don't profess to know her particularly well, but she had amazing quality in that she was so caring, warm, but then also just loved to fight. <laughs> and it's such a contrast for someone who is, is again, caring, warm, loving, but then just loved to fight and would pick a fight if she thought and would battle it out, be it squash court or parliament, and she was fierce. <laughs> yep. She was known to us, too, you know, via appearances on afternoon briefing. I think the modern word is relatable, you know, very, very relatable, very gutsy. That was observed by many and, as Charles says, much respected, well beyond the Labor caucus. Um, noteworthy were Darren Chester mm. and Michael McCormack among the uh, warmest speeches given in the condolence session that was held throughout the Wednesday here. Mm. So uh, unfortunately also once the grieving is over, the Speaker will have to turn his mind to ordering a by-election in that seat of Dunkley in Melbourne, a margin of only 6.3%. So I don't think the government could be completely confident that uh, this is an easy hold. What do you think, Charles? uh, Much concern about this one falling? No, tough seat. The circumstances are always a bit strange. I remember when uh, Don Randall passed away in WA, there was a bit of talk then that the, maybe that seat would go in the other circumstances, that the government would lose it. At that time, it was the coalition, and, and, and that didn't happen. It's, it's a tight seat, and it's, a, I'd say, notionally a liberal seat Yes, because 6.3% isn't really tight, but it's that it's really been notionally, its history is, is liberal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is, and and that's what makes it so tough. If you've got this, if six point three is tight for this government come <laughs> the election, they're in big <laughs> trouble. This, there's a bit, a few more things to worry about. Yeah, it just yeah. Looking back, I'm sort of just Bruce Bilson was the Liberal who held it for you know multiple terms. Yeah, uh, I seriously doubt Labor right now would have won an Aston by election if it were held mm. uh, here before mm. Christmas or early next year, for that matter. Dunkley has a little bit more. Going for it for Labor, mortgage belt pain uh, would be a factor, of course. I think the only certainty 
is uh, on proven track record, the ALP machine will crank up and really go for it. It needs to, and it does, mm. let's face it, have a better proven record as effective campaigners in Victoria than yeah. the Libs Particularly do. down there, yeah. yeah. Charles, great to have you on the party room again. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me back. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Now, the bells are ringing, which means it's time for question time here on The Party Room, and this week's question comes from Christian. I get the impression there's a much bigger focus on political points going rather than discussing and resolving the big issues. What will it take to actually improve the quality of our politics and political discussions? fundamentally from our political class, but also what role does the media and the public play too? Greg, I think that's one for you. All right. Thank you very much, Christian and Fran. Uh, look, quality, as always, is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? It's not a great time to hold out much hope that the distillation of quite complex, often, political arguments into trite three-word slogans or insults is actually going to stop. You'd have to say the tide's been running in the opposite direction of late. But there are, you know, glimmers of hope and light there. You know, we talk about complex debate. Uh, NDIS is a classic example, and we started... Uh, this podcast discussing how that's been executed and where it will run in debate over the months ahead. That is complex, can't be done with three-word slogans, and I think every now and then politics shows that it's capable of uh, you know, detailed policy debate too. Yeah, but as you say, it's been ever thus. I mean, I've been covering politics for 30 years and it has been ever thus. I think Paul Keating, when he was Prime Minister, used to say good policy is good politics. You wish that was true. I think the advent of 24-hour news, a faster news cycle, social media, means we are getting the sort of the spin cycle much more and so that's what cuts through. And reporters, you know, there's fewer political reporters, for instance, in the gallery covering mm. politics than there was when I started and they're doing a lot more. They're turning out a lot more for a lot more platforms. And that means there is less thinking time, is less time to write features about policy. So I, I think it is part of the problem. Um, our, we have an adversarial system, as Greg said. Uh, so that, that's, that's how the, the political debate goes. It's pretty far, furious. But um, I do think there is less policy discussion there used to be. Anyway, that's it from us. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Send your questions in. We love getting them. We love those voice notes in particular. Thank you, Christian. You can email them to the party room at abc.net. All right. Well, that is it for the party room this week. I'm not sure I'll be back with you before the year is out, Fran, but thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks very much, Greg. See ya.